Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a wet and humid summer morning here in the capital is Darren Davies. Darren is the Managing Director at the Clever Baggers Limited, a specialist textile printing company based in Four Crosses. Uh, Darren, very warm welcome to you and thank you for joining us on the show. Hi, good morning. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure having you with us, Darren, for sure. Um, not the nicest day for it weather-wise, but luckily we're indoors and away from the rain. Um, and I think a good place to start on the programme today would be by addressing the elephant in the room here. And that's the fact that as we record this podcast in early July 2021, albeit we are nearing the end of social restrictions, hopefully, which will come on July 19th, we are still living under some form of freedom curtailment and that's been the case for the best part of the last 14 or 15 months now so going way back to when that first covid19 lockdown was called back in march of last year to what extent do you think all of this has affected you and affected your business well it's um uh, remembering back um it, it, it although it, it is over 12 months it does seem like yesterday still um it, it it was quite a shock. Um, we ourselves were not impacted in terms of the restrictions to close, but it did actually close. I, I would say seventy percent of our uh, customer base, uh, the majority of our businesses within either the hospitality or the marketing, merchandising, and promotional uh, sectors. So obviously, we had a very difficult decision on how do we tackle. Uh, the, the, the very clear downturn in in operations and, and workload. Uh, so we we discussed with the team, uh, the managers and, and all of the staff, um, and myself and the management team came up with a plan to literally reduce our workforce uh, by probably ninety percent. Um, with, with just a very very small number, um, and by small I mean that there was I think there was four people uh, left in the business for the first three months of the lockdown, uh, just to basically keep the processes ticking over, uh, keep the orders that were coming in uh, flowing through the business and out the door to the customers, and just making sure we were there to, to, to help support those businesses that were um, uh, trying to struggle through those, those difficult times. And how was it sort of making use of the sort of government support that was provided to make that possible? Have you found that the support measures they've put in, but also the guidance they provided to operate safely has been helpful over the course of the last year? I, I think the, the, the job uh, retention scheme uh, was invaluable um, to ourselves. Um, I, I think it's quite clear that we, we probably wouldn't have survived uh, that period uh, primarily because we would have not had the workforce when when the orders did start to pick up towards the end of 2020. Um, as the restrictions did lift towards the end of the year, we, we saw a, a slight increase. Um, that's obviously dropped again, uh, and we're actually currently in a, sh- a short period of reusing the, the furlough scheme we had 
all of our staff back for several months. Um, but because we've seen a drop again, which we suspect is due to the uh, initial uh, delay from the 21st of June um, relaxing date. And uh, it's, it's, it's been invaluable. Um, it was quite a surprise to see the level of support that was given. Uh, the cost obviously is going to be phenomenal to uh, the economy, as we all know, mm. uh, but it has protected jobs. Uh, we would have we would have made people uh, redundant. We would have laid people off, and there they would have looked for work elsewhere. So I, I, I don't think our business would have survived, and we wouldn't be in the position we're in now that we are for when we do see a relaxing. Uh, we, we're ready to go. Um, we're keen. We're to, to get back on track. We're keen to start seeing the customers uh, get their processes back up and running, get their business operating. Uh, we're feeling confident that we're in a strong position, and that that is down to the, the support that the government put in place. Um, in, in terms of the guidance, I think the only um, thing I would have liked to see a little bit more clarity on was, was the guidance for the workplace. It was very, very clear for... Uh, public spaces such as the, the shops uh, when the bars and restaurants were open, but for w- workplaces where staff may have to come into contact with each other within a warehouse environment or within the print workshop, it wasn't as clear. So we, we sort of formulated our own ideas from what was being put out there into the into the sort of public domain. Uh, the staff all took everything on board and, and have supported the initiatives throughout. Uh, we, we've increased all of our sort of hygiene protocols and, and every member of staff plays an, an active part in, in maintaining hygiene and cleanliness standards throughout the building, which is still going on today and will probably go on even as we start to relax the, uh, the rules in the external environment. We will probably maintain a certain level internally because... We are still a group of people from differing households, different areas coming together on a regular basis. And I, I think it's important we, we, we take responsibility to, to keep each other as safe as we can um, whilst we're at work. I think you raise an incredibly important point there, and that's the fact that even when we do see social restrictions go on July the 19th, there may be some individuals and some businesses that choose to stick with them because... Mental health and well-being are two issues that have been significantly amplified by the pandemic. And if there is continued anxiety about safety, even when the government deems it safe to lift things like social distancing, it is in one's best interest to perhaps sort of voluntarily stick by those restrictions that we've seen. And perhaps it may even end up being part of the status quo moving forward, even if not legally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We've had a discussion at the start of this week to to look at what we what we will do when when we actually have some clearer guidance um, and our plans are to obviously hold a consultation with the, the staff here to see what their feelings are. Are they keen to sort of see a relaxing in, in the, the rules that we've put in place? Are they keen to see us upholding and continuing with it? Um, because we, we do want um, people to be comfortable. We want people to enjoy coming to work as much as they can. But the most important at the moment, as you said, is people not feeling nervous or apprehensive about coming into the workplace, knowing they're interacting with people from other households. And, and you know, we've got quite a widespread uh, range in terms of geographical areas that people come from. So we do have people travelling from 
North Wales, Mid Wales, from Shropshire. Um, and, and we know that there's there has been quite different um, scenarios in regional areas. When it comes to sort of looking back at how you've had to step up and guide your organisation and your workforce through the last 14 or 15 months, would you say that this experience has actually made you stronger as a business leader and developed you as a person at all? Um, I, I think so, yes. I mean, one of the things that really sort of hit me was the the, the staff that were furloughed. I, I I have said to them numerous times when, when they've been out of the business and when they've returned, just how much we've appreciated that support because I, I, I did have to sort of like realize that people found that quite difficult actually, just not having a job, not having a routine. Uh, we all enjoy a week's holiday or two weeks holiday, but to have five or six months um, out of work and also not actually being able to go about any of what we would consider our normal sort of activities during that time um, will have been, will have also been as difficult as those staff who remained in and then had the added, the added pressures of trying to sort of maintain the flow of the business. Um, and it, it just made me made me see how again how how diverse people are and how how much you have to be appreciative of the different sort of sacrifices and the different ways that um, we ask our staff to support the business with its overall goals and objectives. I think what we can see as well is that people have really brought out the best in themselves over the course of the last year and we've harnessed a real community spirit and one of the good things within business that have come out of this through all of this struggle is a renewed trust in one's workforces but also sort of greater levels of communication because we've had to adapt to communicating remotely, we've had to adapt to leading each other from a distance and I think all of that are good things to be going on with aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's one of the clearest messages that came through from the staff during the um, lockdown period last year when we were working with very, very reduced numbers and as we've slowly increased bringing the staff back into the business uh, is that they're, they're feeling a, a much greater sense of team spirit. Um, I think because we've had to sort of literally take on more tasks We've had to work much more across several departments or processes. We, we've seen a greater appreciation of our colleagues' roles, of our of the pressures that other departments might have that we don't have in our own departments. And I, I, I am seeing a, a real sort of positive um, change within the workforce, um, a greater sort of sense of almost ownership and responsibility over um, the, the daily tasks and the activities. And, and that can't be anything but positive because it's it it does build uh, a greater sense of belonging and um, almost community within the company. And we know when you have that in place, you everybody sort of thrives and flourishes, which ultimately means the business will flourish. And that that's all of our our aims is to make sure that we we as a company can continue to grow we can continue to develop and push our, our sort of vision. Um, and, and we do that better as a team rather than a group of individuals. 
And I think it's going to be an interesting time going forward for businesses like yours, isn't it? I think it's a good time to inform the listeners that what the Clever Baggers Limited essentially does is specialise in the supply and print of compostable bags and textiles. And there's been a lot of talk about the government's Build Back Better agenda ultimately spearheading a green economic recovery. And so that's going to be a very, very interesting period for businesses that are eco-friendly like yourselves. Yes, definitely. It's um, I think it's it's an opportunity to sort of say that we, we need to start taking more responsibility with the materials that we use in all areas of our process. Uh, we know it's very difficult um, to, to look at every single aspect of the, of the process. We know some materials are better than others. But I think it's just making sure we do actually consider it is what we're utilising, is is what we're actually putting out into the marketplace, the, the best that we can actually do at the moment. Um, one thing we did notice, which was a real positive for, for ourselves, with the increase in online um, trade throughout the lockdown period, a lot of our customers were switching from their traditional packaging materials to more environmentally friendly packaging mm. and we did see a real shift in the type of products that we were were selling um, obviously the, the sort of main product areas for us are, are the alternates to the plastic shopping bag which is the, the cotton carrier but we've seen a real increase in the smaller packaging type materials such as the, the, the cotton drawstring bags or the pouches um, and, and that was really encouraging to see that um from from large and small online retailers that they were actually looking at the materials they were using within their packaging. And even though they acknowledge there's a greater cost, they, they say, you know, we have this responsibility now. Um, and there was a lot of the smaller businesses that started up during the pandemic um, who also basically from day one have said, no, we are going to use very, very specific types of materials within our process and to promote our products. It needs to be the whole product cycle, if you like, rather than we have, we have a very nice product, but it is still delivered to you in packaging that doesn't really support the message that we're putting out. And I, I think the initiatives that come out will see uh, exciting times for a lot of sectors, a lot of industries where they, they will be challenged to, to look at alternatives, um, but they are out there. Um, that there are lots of choices for, for better ways of, of doing what we've sort of historically just taken for granted and always used the, the easy or the traditional um, option. Exactly right. And I suppose the challenge for industry operators is to sort of balance that out with sort of hygiene concerns as well. And that's why we've sort of seen a lot of single use materials being used just so they can be sort of disposed of straight away. So one challenge to address certainly in the uh, the future. And talking about the future, just before we do wrap things up, because I'm conscious that we're beginning to run short of time on the programme today, Darren, um, we are nearing the end of social restrictions and it is very likely now that we will be moving out of um, any sort of curtailment of freedom by July the 19th. But as we leave the COVID lockdown behind, what are your ambitions at the Clever Baggers for the next 12 months? And indeed, where are you hoping to be by this time in 2022 as we enter this period of recovery, hopefully? Well, we're, we're, we're very sort of keen to be back as the, 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 the first choice for our uh, promotional customers, for the marketing industry, for the exhibition industry, but we also want to see a lot more companies that are using online 
uh, channels and are obviously dispatching a lot of um, goods out to customers to start utilising um, a more environmentally friendly option. Uh, the more that we actually switch that across, the, the, the better we can look at the pricing structure, the, the more readily available it can become. And I think we, we'd like to see ourselves at the forefront of, of pushing the awareness uh, of the advantages of, of an alternate type of material for not just carrying uh, goods from A to B, but for maybe delivering or presenting. Um, it's, the, the uses are, are, are pretty much endless, um, and the, the potential for enhancing uh, customers' perception of um, the products or the brand um, again, our, our sort of with the environmental aspect, it really is um, advantageous to, to look at the products that we that we put into the marketplace. So I so said we're, we're keen. We, we feel we're in a very strong position. Uh, the team that we have are very keen to get back on track. Uh, we're just looking forward to to almost being under a great deal of pressure from our customers to fulfil their needs and demands as as things do start to get get back to normal. Yeah, it's going to be a very fascinating time for business, isn't it, over the course of the next few months as normal does hopefully resume or the new normal as hopefully it will be. Um, and I think, Darren, as we start to understand exactly what the post-COVID world is actually starting to look like, I'd relish the opportunity to welcome you back onto the programme with us and just catch up as to how the Clever Baggers is doing in that new world because it's been a real eye-opener, I have to say, having you join us on the programme today. You know, I've thoroughly enjoyed our discussion. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I look forward to that. And it would be, uh, be exciting to sort of update you in, in, in the future on, on how we've progressed and, and how we've seen potentially the external environment sort of progress and develop um, as a result of this. Mm, let's certainly look forward to then, Darren. And in the meantime, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all that's still going on because we're not quite there yet, but I'm confident the better days are ahead of us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to join you. And yes, um, stay safe, everyone. And yes, remember that, yeah, we're not quite there, but um, we will get there and we will see normality very soon. We will indeed. Please do, everybody tuning in today, continue to look after yourselves and others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives. Um, it was a pleasure, of course, today to welcome Darren Davies, Managing Director at the Clever Baggers Limited, onto the programme today. Um, here at the Leaders' Council, of course, we enjoy bringing forward a diverse range of perspectives on leadership, and we will therefore be joined by Leaders' Council Chairman and former Education Secretary Lord David Blunkett next up on the programme. He will be coming on to talk about his take on the last 15 or 16 months of living under social restrictions and his hopes for the weeks and the months ahead. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can 
uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, 
local, regional, national level, the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by 
local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to 
everything being London centric, I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticize the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh- cut, uh, shutdown. Um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think 
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.